Chapter 15 of Katrina by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Wayne Cook. Chapter 15 Black Andy's Tale of Todd Laperick. I have yet said little of the Highlanders. They were all three of the followers of James Moore, which bound the accusation very tight about their master's neck. All understood a word or two of English, but Neil was the only one who judged he had enough of it for general converse, in which, when once he got embarked, his company was often tempted to the contrary opinion. They were tractable, simple creatures, showed much more courtesy than might have been expected from their raggedness and their uncouth appearance, and fell spontaneously to be like three servants for Andy and myself. Dwelling in that isolated place in the old fallen ruins of a prison, and among endless strange sounds of the sea and the seabirds, I thought I perceived in them early the effects of superstitious fear. When there was nothing doing, they would either lie and sleep, for which their appetite appeared insatiable, or Neil would entertain the others with stories which seemed always of a terrifying strain. If neither of these delights were within reach, if perhaps two were sleeping and the third can find no means to follow their example, I would see him sit and listen and look about him in a progression of uneasiness, starting, his face blenching, his hands clutched, a man strung like a bow. The nature of these fears I had never an occasion to find out, but the sight of them was catching, and the nature of the place that we were in favorable to alarms. I can find no word for it in the English, but Andy had an expression for it in the Scots, from which he never varied. I, he would say, is an uncle place, the bass. It is so I always think of it. It was an unco place by night, unco by day, and these were unco sounds of the calling of the solons and the splash of the sea and the rock echoes that hung continually in our ears. It was chiefly so in moderate weather. When the waves were away great, they roared about the rock like thunder and the drums of armies, dreadful but merry to hear and it was in the calm days that a man could daunt himself with listening. Not a highlandman only, as I several times experimented on myself. So many still, hollow noises haunted and reverberated in the porches of the rock. This brings me to a story I heard, and a scene I took part in, which quite changed our terms of living, and had a great effect on my departure. It chanced one night I fell in a muse beside the fire and, that little air of Alan's coming back to my memory, began to whistle. A hand was laid upon my arm, and the voice of Neil bade me to stop, for it was not canny music. Not canny? I asked. How can that be? Nah, said he. It will be made by Vogeliner wanting to be heard upon his body. Well, said I, there can be no boggles here, Neil, for it's not likely they would fash themselves to frighten geese. Aye, said Andy, is that what you think of it? 
But I can tell you there's been war, no boggles there. What's war than boggles, Andy? said I. Warlocks, said he, or a warlock at the least of it. And that's a queer tale, too, he added. And if you would like, I'll tell it ye. To be sure, we were all of the one mind, and even the Highlander that had the least English of the three set himself to listen with all his might. The Tale of Todd Laperick My father, Tamdale, peace to his bones, was a wild, splorn lad in his young days with little wisdom and little grace. He was fond of a lass, and fond of a glass, and fond of a randan. But I could never hear tell that he was muckle use for honest employment. Frey a thing to another, he listed at last for a soldier, and was in the garrison of this fort, which was the first way the Tony of the Dales came to set foot upon the bass. Sorrow upon that service. The governor brewed his ain ale, it seems it was the worst conceivable. The rock was provisioned free, and the shore with vivers. The thing was ill-guided, and there were wiles when they but to fish and shoot solons for their diet. To crown and there was the days of the persecution. The parish and called chalmers were all occupied with saints and martyrs, the salt of the earth for which it was named worthy. And though Tom Dale carried a firelock there, a single soldier, and liked a lass and a glass, as I was saying, the mind of the man was just and set with his position. He had glints of the glory of the kirk. There were wiles when his dander raised to see the large saints misguided, and shame covered him that he should be a holden, a cannel, or carrying a firelock in so black a business. There were nights of it when he was here on sentry, the place a wish it, the frosts a winter may be riven in the ways, and he would hear any or the prisoner strike up a psalm, and the rest join in, and the blessed sounds rising from the different chalmers, or dungeons, I would rather say so that this old crag in the sea was like a part of heaven. Black shame was on his soul. His sins hove up before him muckle as the bass, and above it, that chief sin that he should have a hand in hagen and hashin at Christ's kirk. But the truth is that he resisted the spirit. Day came, and there were the rousing companions, and his gold reserves departed. In their days dwelled upon the bass a man of God. Paden the prophet was his name. You'll have heard tell of prophet Paden. There was never the while of him since, and it's a question with many if there ever was his like afore. He was a wild peat hag, fearsome to look at, fearsome to hear, his face like the day of judgment. The voice of him was like a solon's, and dindling in his folk's lungs, and the words of him like coals of fire. 
Now, there was a lass on the rock, and I think she had little to do, for it was nae place for decent women. But it seems she was bonny, and her and Tamdale were very well agreed. It befell that Payton was in the garden, his lane at the praying, when Tam and the lass came by. And what should the lassie do but mock with laughter at the saints' devotions? He rose and looked at, at the twa of them, and Tam's knees connoitered together at the look of him. But when he spake, it was mere in sorrow than in anger. Par thing, par thing, says he, and it was the lass he looked at. I hear you squirrel and laugh, he says, but the Lord has a dead shot prepared for you, and at that surprising judgment ye shall squirrel but the eight time. Shortly thereafter, she was wandering on the crags with two or three soldiers, and it was a bally day. There came a ghost of wind, clotter by the coats, and away with her bag and baggage. And it was remarked by the soldiers that she guide with a skirt. No doubt this judgment had some witch upon Tamdale, but it passed again, and him none the better. I day he was fighting with another soldier lad, Dale hae me, quoth Tam, for he is a profane swearer. And there was Pedden glowering at him, gash and waffle, Pedden with his lang chaffs and lutenin, and Maud happed about his kist, and the hand of him held out with the black nails upon the finger nibs, for he had nae care of the body. Fie, fie, poor man, cries he, the poor fool man. Deal hae me, quoth he, and I see the deal at his oxter. The conviction of guilt and grace came in on Tam like the deep sea. He flang down the pike that was in his hands. I will ne'er mere lift arms against the cause of Christ, says he, and was as good as his word. There was a sky fike in the beginning, but the governor, seeing him resolved, guide him his discharge, and he went and dwelt and married in Northberwick, had I a good name with honest folk free that day on. It was in the year 1706 that the bass came in the hands of the Dalrymples. And there was twa men such the charge of it. Both were well qualified, for they had both been soldiers in the garrison, and kent the gate to handle solons and the seasons and the values of them. Forby that they were both, or they both seemed, earnest professors and men of comely conversation. The first of them was just Tam Dale, my father. The second was an Laprick, whom the folks called Todd Laprick Mersley, but whether his name or his nature I could never tell. Well, Tam 
scared to see Laprick upon his business, and took me that was a toddling laddie by the hand. Todd has his dwelling in the long lone beneath the kirkyard. It's a dark, uncanny lone, for by that the kirk has I had an ill name since the days of James the Sixth, and the devil's cantrips played wherein when the queen was on the seas. And as for Todd's house, it was in the Marcust end, and was little liked by some that kenned the best. The door was on the snack that day, and me and my father get stretch in. Todd was a webster to his trade. His loom stood in the butt. There he sat, a muckle fat, white hash of a man like Krish, with a kind of a holy smile that got me schooner. The hand of him I cawed the shuttle, but his inn was streaked. We cried to him by his name. We skirled in the dyed lug of him. We shook him by the shoulder. Nay, manner a service. There he sat on his dope and cawed the shuttle and smiled like Krish. God be good to us, says Tamdale. This is no canny. He had Jim said the word when Todd Laprick came to himself. Is this you, Tam, says he. Haith, man, I'm blithe to see you. Whiles went to the bit warm like this, says he. It's fray the stomach. Wildy began to crack about the bass, and which of them twa was to get the warden of it. And little by little came to very ill words, and twined in anger. I might will that as my feather and me get home again, he came over and o'er the same expression. How little he liked Todd Laperick and his dwams. Dwams, says he. I think for have burnt for dwams like yon. Well, my father got the bass, and Todd had to go wanton. It was remembered since in that way he had attained the thing. Tam, says he, ye have gotten the better of me unsmare, and I hope, says he, ye'll find at least that ye expected at the bass. Which have since been thought remarkable expressions. At last the time came for Tam Dale to take young Solons. This was a business he was well used with. He had been a craigsman for laddie, and trust none but himself. So there was he hanging by a line, spellering on the craig face where it's highest and straightest. Far twenty lads were on the tap, hauled in the line and minding for his signals. But where Tam hung, there was nothing but the crack, and the sea below, and the solen skirling and flying. It was a bra spring morn, and Tam whistled as he clot in the young geese. Many's the time I've heard him tell of this experience, and I, the sweat ran upon the man. It chanced, you see, that Tam keeled up, and he was aware of a muckle solen, and the solen piking at the line. 
He thought this by ordinary and outside the creature's habits. He minded that ropes were uncousef things, and the solens neb and the bass rock uncouhired, and the twa hundred feet were rather more than he would care to fall. Shoo, says Tam, away, bird, shoo, away we, says he. The solen kicked down into Tam's face, and there was something uncoo in the creature's eye. Just the eye creak it glided and back to the rope, but now it watched and worsened like a thing demented. There never was a solen maid that watched as that solen watched, and it seemed to understand its employ brawly. Burzing the soft rope between the nib of it and the crunkled jagged stone. There gave a cold stand of fear into Tam's heart. This thing is nay bird, thinks he. His ear turned backward in his head, and the day guide black about him. If I get it warm here, he touched, it's by with Tam Dale, and he signaled for the lads to pull him up. And it seemed a Solon understood about signals, for nay sooner was a signal made than he let be the rope, spried his wings, squawked out loud, took a turn flying, and dashed straight at Tam Dale's inn. Tam had a knife, and he guarded the cold steel glitter. And it seemed a Solon understood about knives, for nay sooner did the steel glint in the sun than he guided the a squawk, but lighter like a body disappointed, and flagged off about the roundness of the crag, and Tam saw him nay mare. And as soon as that thing was gone, Tam had dropped upon his shoulder, and they pulled him up like a dyed corpse daddling on the crag. A dram of brandy, which he never went without, brushed him to his mind or what was left of it. Up he sat. Ren, Geordie, run to the boat, make sure of the boatman. Ren, he cries, or yon solon will have it away, says he. The four lads stared at either and tried to willy-wah him to be quiet. But nothing would satisfy Tam Dale, till none of them had started on head to stand sentry on the boat. The others asked if he was for down again. Nah, says he, and neither you nor me, says he. And as soon as I can win to stand on my twa feet, we'll be off frae this craig is swatting. Sure enough, nay, time was lost, and that was all muckle. For before they won to North Berwick, Tam was in a crying fever. He lay on the simmer, and what was say kind as some spearing for him, but Todd Laperick. Folk thought afterwards that ilk a time Todd came near the house, the fever had worsened. I kenna for that, but what I ken the best, that was the end of it. It was about this time of the year. My grandfather was out at the white fishing, and like a bairn, I but two gang with him. 
We had a grand take, I mind, in the way that the fish lay brought us nearin' by the bass, where we foregathered with another boat that belonged to a man, Sandy Fletcher in Castleton. He no lang died neither, nor ye could spear it himself. Will Sandy hailed. What's yon on the bass? says he. On the bass, says Grandfather. Aye, says Sandy, on the green side of it. One kind of a thing, says Grandfather. There can't be nothing on the bass but just the sheep. It looks uncold like a body, quoth Sandy, who was nearer in. A body, says we, and we none of us like that. For there was nae boat that could have brought a man, and the key of the prison he had hung o'er my father's at home in the press bed. We kept the twa boats close for company, and crapping nearer hand. Grandfather had a glass, for he had been a sailor and captain of a smack, and had lost her on the sands of Tay. And when we took the glass to it, sure enough, there was a man. He was in a crunkle of green bray, a wee below the chapel, and by his lee lane, and loped and flang and danced like a daft quain at the waiting. It's Todd, said Grandfather, and passed the glass to Sandy. Aye, it's him, said Sandy. Or under the likeness of him, says Grandfather. Smize the difference, quoth Sandy. Dale or Warlock? I'll try the gun at him, quoth he, and rocked up a fowling piece that he I carried, for Sandy was a notable famous shot in all that country. Hold your hands, Sandy, says Grandfather. We mun see clearer first, says he, or this may be a dear day's work on the both of us. Hold, said Sandy, this is the Lord's judgment, surely, and be damned to it, says he. Maybe I, and maybe no, says my grandfather, worthy man. But have you a mind of the procreator fiscal that I think you'll have foregathered with before, says he. This was all true, and Sandy was a wee thing, said a gee. A wee lady, says he, and what would be your way of it? Oh, just thus, says grandfather. Let me that has the fastest boat gang back to North Berwick, and let you bide here and keep an eye on Thon. If I can a fine Laprick, I'll join ye, and the twa of us'll have a crack with him. But if Laprick's at helm, I'll win up the flag at the harbor, and ye can try Thong Thing with the gun. A wheel, so it was agreed between them twa. I was just a baron and clum in Sandy's boat, where I thought I would see the best of the employ. My grandsire gave Sandy a cellar test to put in his gun with the lead drapes, being mere deadly against bogles. And then, as the boat set off for North Berwick, and the thither lay war as it was, and watched in one chancy thing on the brayside, at the time we lay there, it loped and flang and capered and span like a teetotum, 
and whiles we could hear it scalch as it span. I have seen lassies, the daft queens, and would lope and dance at winter's night, and still be loping and dancing when the winter's day came in. But there would be folk there to hold them company, and the lads to egg them on, and this thing was its lee lane. And there would be a fiddler diddling his eye-block in the chimney-side, and this thing had nay music but the skirling of the solons. And the lassies were bits of young things, with the rude life dindling and standing in their members. And this was a muckle, fat, crashy man, and him fan in the veil of years. Say what ye like, I mun say what I believe. It was joy in the creature's heart, the joy of hell, I dare say, joy whatever. Money a time I have asked myself why witches and warlocks should sell their souls, whilk are their most dear possessions, and be old, duddy, and wrinkled wives or old, feckless, doddered men. And then I mind upon Todd Laprick's dancing at the hours by his lane in the black glory of his heart. Nay doubt they burn for it muckle in hell but they have a grand time here of it, whatever, and the Lord forgive us. Well, at the hinder end we saw the wee flag your cup at the masthead upon the harbor rocks. That was a Sandy waited for. He up with a gun, took a deliberate aim, and pulled the trigger. There came a bang, and then a wailful skirl fray the bass. And there we were rubbing our inn and looking at either like daft folks. For with the bang and the skeel, the thing had clean disappeared. The sun glinted and wound blue, and there was the bare yard where the wonder had been low-pining and flinging but a second sign. The hail way home, I roared and grat with the terror of that dispensation. The grand folk were nay say muckle better. There was little said in Sandy's boat but just the name of God. And when we went in by the pier, the harbor rocks were fair black with the folks waiting us. It seems they had fun laprick in an of his dwams, cawing the shuttle and smiling. A lad they sent to hoist the flag, and the rest abode there in the Webster's house. You may be sure they liked it little, but it was a means of grace to severals that stood there praying in to themselves, for none cared to pray out loud, and looking on thon awesome thing as it caught the shuttle. Sign upon us suddenly, and with the eye dreadful skelich, Todd sprang up fray his hinderlands and fell forth on the wab, a bloody corpse. When the corpse was examined, they laid drabs and Eddie played buff upon the warlock's body. Sorrow or laid drap was to be found, but there was Grandfather Siller Tester in the puttock's heart of him.
Andy had scarcely done, when there befell a mighty silly affair that had its consequence. Neil, as I have said, was himself a great narrator. I have heard since that he knew all the stories in the Highlands, and thought much of himself, and was thought much of by others on the strength of it. Now Andy's tale reminded him of one he had already heard. "'She would ken the story afore,' said he. "'She was the story of Ustenmore and McGay Flaherig and the Gravervore.' "'It is no such thing,' cried Andy. "'It is a story of my father, now a god, and Todd Laperick, "'and the same in your beard,' says he, "'and keep the tongues of ye inside your highland shafts.' "'In dealing with highlanders, it will be found, and has been shown in history, "'how well it goes with lowlander gentlefolk. "'But the thing appears scarce feasible for lowland commons.' I had already remarked that Andy was continually on the point of quarreling with our three MacGregors, and now, sure enough, it was to come. "'There will be no words to use to shentlemans,' said Neil. "'Shentlemans!' cried Andy. "'Shentlemans, ye highland stot! If God would give ye the grace to see yourself the way that others see ye, ye would throw your dinner up. There came some kind of a Gaelic oath from Neil, and the black knife was in his hand that moment. There was no time to think, and I caught the Highlander by the leg, and had him down in his armed hand pinned out, before I knew what I was doing. His comrades sprang to rescue him. Andy and I were without weapons, and the Gregara three to two. It seemed we were beyond salvation, when Neil screamed in his own tongue, ordering the others back and made his submission to myself in a manner of the most abject, even giving me up his knife, which, upon a repetition of this promises, I returned to him on the morrow. Two things I saw plain. The first, that I must not build too high on Andy, who had shrunk against the wall and stood there as pale as death till the affair was over. The second, the strength of my own position with the Highlanders, who must have received extraordinary charges to be tender of my safety. But if I thought Andy came not very well out in courage, I had no fault to find with him upon the account of gratitude. It was not so much that he troubled me with thanks, as that his whole mind and manner appeared changed, and, as he preserved ever after, a great timidity of our companions, he and I were yet more constantly together. End of chapter 15